0: Trouble Brewing at Blue Origin and the search for extraterrestrial life. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. There's Trouble Brewing at private aerospace company Blue Origin. Jeff Bezos's rocket company took a gamble on its bid for NASA's Human Lunar Lander contract and lost, according to documents obtained by The Verge via FOIA requests. The documents shed light on how Blue Origin operates and NASA's view of the commercial space company. But that's not all for Blue. Last week, 21 former and current employees published an essay detailing a hostile work environment, sexist managers, and allegations of safety violations that the Federal Aviation Administration is now investigating. We'll speak with space reporter Joey Roulette about his reporting on NASA's souring relationship with Blue Origin and the allegations made by its employees. Then, to find aliens on other planets, some astronomers are looking for intergalactic polluters. We'll speak to a Florida Institute of Technology assistant professor to talk about his search for life in our universe and how looking for signs of planetary pollution like greenhouse gases might help us uncover our galactic neighbors. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE America's Space Station. An essay penned by 21 current and former employees of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin alleged gender pay gaps and sexist behavior by senior leaders and managers and raised concerns over the company's safety culture. In an email to staff sent by Blue Origin CEO Bob Smith and obtained by WMFE, Smith said the company is reflecting on what it can do to improve and reminded his team that the company doesn't tolerate harassment or discrimination. The news comes on the heels of some groundbreaking reporting from The Verge on Blue Origin's bid to build NASA's next moon lander, which was awarded to rival company SpaceX. Joey Roulette broke the story of Blue's bid and NASA's reaction with his reporting appearing in the online publication The Verge. He's now with The New York Times and joins us now. Joey, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) So uh, a recent story you published um, was based on um, a FOIA request you submitted to NASA um, kind of looking into uh, NASA's uh, thought process during this human landing system um, selection process. With these documents, what did you learn?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I requested um, what's called the agency report, which is the the report that's required, uh, you know, of agencies when a protester files some kind of protest at the GAO. So this report was, you know, NASA's official response, their first official response to Blue Origin's protest, um, and I requested it, and uh, it was—it was pretty interesting. I mean, NASA passionately was defending, you know, its Artemis program, and um, what's what's also interesting is that you know when us reporters would ask Bill Nelson, you know, about the timeline or what kind of a threat Blue Origin's protest poses to the overall Artemis program, a lot of times he would say. I can't talk about it. I can't say anything. I'm I'm prevented by law from from commenting on it because there's active litigation. Um and I I don't know that that, that was true because I don't really I don't really think there's any kind of prohibition uh you know on talking uh you know on NASA's side. So I requested this report. It laid out NASA's full legal response to Blue Origins protest. Um and yeah, I mean NASA really set the stakes, you know, made clear what the stakes were. Um you know, they they talked about how this is going to delay the program. And, you know, it, it, while it is you know, just a delay, a delay could turn into something more catastrophic. It could erode political support. And ultimately, it could lead to a, quote, shelved mission, and, and that's what the attorneys wrote. Um, but yeah, several, several pages of legalese and <laughs> that I won't specifically get into here. But yeah.
0: And and we appreciate you going through it for us. Yeah. <laughs> so Joey, take us back. I mean, you know, why is Blue Origin protesting this selection? What do we know about the process and and Blue Origin's thinking through this?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of theories as to why Blue Origin's, <laughs> Blue Origin's doing what it's doing. Um, but it really just wants to get its way into, you know, a, a, what's really an iconic program, one of NASA's most ambitious programs since the Apollo era. Um, and, and this particular program is its first effort to procure an actual human lunar lander uh, since 1972. So, um, but, but yeah, so Blue Origin is, is really trying, Blue Origin is really trying to, you know, squeeze its way into this program. Um, and they, they, you know, they're, they're fairly new. They haven't done a lot uh, of the same things that SpaceX has done. They have yet to reach orbit. And I think they see this as, you know, kind of something similar to what SpaceX did in its earlier days. They fought to, when Air Force contracts, and they really had to fight their way to start competing with, you know, the Boeing and the Lockheed Joint Venture, ULA, for, um, you know, offering services to space for the U.S. Um, And and here, Blue Origin's kind of doing the same thing, pulling the same playbook. Um, It's just not working out as successfully as it did for SpaceX.
0: In your reporting um, for the Verge uh, through these FOIA requests, you kind of uncovered what NASA thought of their original bid, which was pretty surprising to me. Um tell us a bit about, you know, NASA called it, quote, a gamble. <laughs> T- tell us a bit about, you know, their perception of of that, that first bid. Yeah,
1: yeah. So NASA's basically, you know, essentially saying Blue Origin lost and it's now, you know, fighting in court to to pick up, you know, where it where it failed in its proposal. Um, and Essentially what they mean by gambling, they they kind of described, uh, they, they point to this six-page letter that was written by Brent Shorewood, which is Blue Origin's, a uh, senior vice president at Blue Origin. And in it, he essentially says Blue Origin would have offered NASA a much lower price had NASA, you know, agreed to talk to us about it. Um, and, and NASA kind of points to that as evidence at, you know, to the fact that they didn't submit their best proposal from the get-go um which is what NASA instructed these companies to do. So NASA kind of framed that as, you know, Blue Origin lost and now they're angry and they they regret making this gamble which was, you know, they assumed NASA would agree to go into negotiations and and you know negotiate the price a little bit. But NASA never did that um and you know they ended up picking up picking SpaceX instead. Um and now Blue Origin's kind of, you know, at the GAO or they were at the GAO, and now they're in federal court, and uh, yeah, and so that that kind of just shows the perspective that NASA wanted to impress upon the attorneys at the GAO.
0: Does this mean that this is over? You know, <laughs> you know, it, it, are are Blue Origin still fighting this, and and what are kind of the um, you know, the legal pathways ahead for Blue Origin?
1: Yeah, yeah. So right now they're they're in federal court, and that's largely you know considered to be the last venue capable of you know hearing these kinds of contract disputes. Um, And so it's really, it'll really be up to the judge uh, as to whether or not they'll they'll have success, of course. Um, I, you know, a lot of people are saying that they probably won't have any success. They lost to the GAO and they kind of repurposed their argument at the GAO and turned it into a lawsuit. And they're just trying to see what they can get out of it now. Um, So if they lose at federal court, um, there's really not much they could do. I mean, it's at that point, it's quite clear that there's really no point in fighting this anymore. And what Blue Origin could do is carry on with what NASA calls the LETS program, which is, you know, kind of a a follow on uh, program that will seek lunar landers from from other companies other than SpaceX for routine transportation services. Um, So I I think, you know, if if Blue Origin loses in court, Um, I think that's what they'll have to resort to is just to carry on with NASA's process here, because I don't really know what else they might they could do legally. Mm -hmm.
0: And what does NASA want? I mean, this, you know, this is a resource heavy legal fight that Blue Origin is waging. It's I've got to assume it's taking resources away from NASA and, you know, wasting time when it comes to the Artemis program. I mean, is that the case? Does NASA want this to be done?
1: NASA wants to wrap this up and, and wrap it up quickly. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they, they, when Blue Origin filed suit in court, well, uh, let me back up a little bit. It's worth, it's worth noting that Blue Origin's first GAO protest put a 95 day or roughly 95 day pause on SpaceX's uh, Starship contract. So that was 95 days that NASA and SpaceX weren't able to work together. Um, you know, after NASA announced SpaceX's award. Um, so when Blue Origin lost the GAO protest, a few weeks later, they filed suit in court. And it was, you know, obvious at that point that this would create another delay. Um, and, you know, NASA, of course, doesn't want a delay on this because they're trying to speed to the moon by 2024, which, you know, is that question right now. Um, but what one of the things NASA did when Blue Origin filed suit in federal court was, um, they they agreed to pause SpaceX's contract while the litigation plays out, only if Blue Origin would in turn agree to speed things up by November first. Um, so they kind of set it, set this deadline. It's unclear if the litigation is going to be able to finish up by November first. It's it's already kind of looking like it might be November eighth or maybe later. Um, but but yeah, so so NASA just really wants this to <laughs> to end soon so that they can kind of get on with their mission to to the moon.
0: Has this pricing strategy been used with other companies before? I mean, is this something new?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So other companies and, you know, including SpaceX, Blue Origin's competitor has kind of done things that someone could consider a gamble in the past. Um, Back in 2018 and 2019, SpaceX pitched its big Starship rocket um, to the Air Force for this development contract that they were, you know, they wanted to get and they lost. they, the Air Force ended up going with other companies. And so SpaceX sued in court, similar to what Blue Origin is doing now. Um, and and they lost in court as well. So um, yeah, I think, and that was during a time where Starship was fairly, you know, underdeveloped. It's still in development, but it was a lot, you know, earlier back then. It was in a much earlier phase of its development. And it they still pitched it to the Air Force. Um, and the Air Force essentially said, this is a it's a great system. It's great what you're doing here, but it's just not for us, you know. Like it's it's a little too complex at this time. So, that that was a kind of a gamble on on SpaceX's part. And um, you know, here we see Blue Origin making a different kind of gamble, more on the pricing side of things. They were hoping they could, you know, see what NASA was looking for in terms of price. They bid high and then thought they could bring it down, but that didn't ever you know really work out because they went with uh, SpaceX instead. So. So yeah there is a little bit of a little bit of history to this kind of gambling with with bidding and contracting and and yeah
0: and Blue Origin was also in headlines um for another reason a an essay penned by both former and current Blue Origin um, employees painted a culture of a toxic work environment um, allegations of harassment um, Joey, what did we learn about Blue Origin from that essay and and what has the company's response been?
1: Yeah, so there there were about 20 21 current and former you know Blue Origin employees who wrote this this pretty lengthy essay on on this website um kind of detailing a culture of sexism and um a, a lot of safety issues uh, a culture of you know bad kind of a bad safety culture at Blue Origin um and I when I asked Blue Origin for comment they had a kind of a concise comment saying that um you know we take this very seriously, we're looking into the issue. Uh, what's interesting is one of the current and former employees is um, a, a Blue Origin, was Blue Origin, one of Blue Origin's senior communications, employee communications officials. Um, she's been on the record about this. She did an interview with CBS News where she put all these kind of allegations out, uh, you know, putting her name on it. And Blue Origin said that um, she was fired in 2019 for issues related to itar, which, you know, are export control laws and for sensitive technology. Um, and, uh, Alexandra, um, she pushed back on that saying that's, that's, you know, essentially saying that's not accurate. That's not, that was not the reasons for my departure. I, I was fired, but that really has nothing to do with it. So there's, there's kind of a weird disagreement there. Um, but, but yeah, I, and according to the Washington post recently, um, Blue Origin apparently fired one a, a senior official um, in light of these allegations, so that was kind of an interesting development. But um, but yeah, Blue Origin said it's looking into it, and uh, the FAA also put out a statement saying that they're also looking into this too. So it might kind of take on a another realm here.
0: Could this impact you know future contracts with with government agencies or, or current contracts that they have now?
1: I think what the FAA would be most concerned about are the allegations in this essay that kind of look at the safety culture, right? Um, In some points of the essay, um, the current and former employees said that Blue Origin often would prioritize speed, getting Jeff Bezos to space in this billionaire space race over safety issues. Um, And so I think that might be what the FAA is most concerned about. And if they do turn up something, I I don't really know the scope of their investigation or what, what, you know, whether it's an actual formal investigation, but if they do turn up something that would be alarming, then, yeah, that, that definitely could have implications for, um, you know, Blue Origin's space tourism program and, and how it's developing New Shepard and launching New Shepard, too, because, uh, you know, the FAA's role is to protect public safety in the, in the event of a launch. So we'll we'll see what, what you know, they turn up and in, in what they're looking at.
0: Still to come, searching for intergalactic polluters. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. To find aliens on other planets, some astronomers are looking for intergalactic polluters. Florida Institute of Technology Assistant Professor Manurs V. Lingham is searching for life outside our planet. He's also the co-author of the book Life in the Cosmos, From Biosignatures to Technosignatures. And I'll start with a, a what I think is a relatively easy question, but I'm sure it's not. How do we find life in the universe? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, that is really the million-dollar question, or rather I should really say the billion-dollar or even trillion-dollar question. Um, there's many different avenues, you know, where whereby we can try to find life in the universe. Um, there's, broadly speaking, two different ways. One is to actually go to the target where you're interested and look for life there. So this could be done, you know, by sending robotic spacecraft to Mars, or to Europa, or to Enceladus, for any of the targets in the solar system, and perhaps in the distant future, even to targets outside the solar system. So that's the first avenue. And the second avenue is that we use telescopes, and we collect light from far off distant planets. And as this light passes through the atmospheres of those planets, the molecules that are present in those planets uh, absorb light at certain wavelengths. And therefore, by looking at the properties of the light that we receive, on Earth from those planets, we can basically uh, try to find out what kind of molecules are present in that atmosphere and therefore learn uh, whether some of these molecules could be produced due to life, such as oxygen, which can be produced due to photosynthesis. So these are the two avenues by which we can hope to find life in the universe. And we find ourselves for the first time in human civilizations, which is about 10,000 years old, where we can actually carry out these uh, Observations in real time
0: mm-hmm. you mentioned when 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 scientists like yourself are looking at these planets you're looking for certain molecules that are in the atmosphere. Uh, what molecules are you looking for and and why is that kind of the signature that you're looking for to to see if there could be life there?
2: This is actually quite a matter of, um, this is something that, you know, been developing very fast. And this particular field is known as biosignatures with the the name being, you know, self-explanatory with the bio indicating the biological part and the signature indicating that it's a trace, a marker of, of life. And so there's been a lot of, uh, of course, debate about what molecules should be searched for. So one of the most well-known ones, and in some ways, the canonical uh, molecule that comes to mind is oxygen. And that's because of the fact that the vast majority of Earth's biomass, it's something like 70% by weight, is made up out of plants. And plants, as we know, you know, out photosynthesis, whereby they extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and release oxygen into the atmosphere. So, oxygen, as it turns out, builds in the atmosphere to significant levels on Earth, you know, uh, largely as a result of this kind of biological activity. So, therefore, it's been theorized that we could look for um, oxygen on other planets as well. And another gas that uh, molecule that Comes to mind, which is very relevant, is the gas methane. So methane can be produced through some non-biological processes as well, and this is true to some degree for oxygen as too. Uh, so, but then one of the major uh, channels through for which uh, through which methane is produced is actually this small microbe. Uh, called methanogens, which, you know, also happen to inhabit the stomachs of many uh, herbivores such as cows and so on. So these uh, particular microbes release methane into the atmosphere, uh, owing to which, again, methane is one more example of a gas, a molecule which happens to be produced largely by life on Earth.
0: What what about the idea of, and I've heard this uh, quite recently in the discussion of searching for life elsewhere in the universe, this idea of technosignatures? Um, what what are these and and how can this help you pin down uh, where there could be evidence of, of life elsewhere?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, so technic signatures is a relatively new field. Uh, I mean, new term. It was coined by one of the pioneers in this field, Dr. Jill Tarter, who served as the basis for Carl Sagan's famous novel and the film that was made out of it called Contact. So earlier we used to call it safety which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and of course it came to be known as technosignature, which um, which really makes sense because just as um, microbial life and other non-technological life produces certain kinds of uh, signals and signatures, as we discussed oxygen and methane being two examples, uh, one can also have intelligent life uh, of the technological kind, also leaving traces of that technology in, in many different ways. Now, that's essentially what is called technosignature. And let me just start with the most common example of such a technosignature, which of course has been around for 60 years, is this idea that we, we can search for radio signals on other planets, Planets as well. And that's because of the fact that uh, you know humans use radio technology very extensively uh, for the purposes of communication and many other reasons. And likewise One could argue that if there were other extraterrestrial intelligent beings out there, they could also use radio technology and they could beam these signals to Earth. So that's one example of course of a techno signature. Another one you know, which I and some of my colleagues have worked on is to again look at the atmosphere, but instead of looking at gases which are produced through biological activity, to look for gases that are produced specifically because of technological activity, and one of the most notorious ones on earth is the well-known chlorofluorocarbons, which were, uh, you know, which were very uh, important in the 80s and 90s, and then the Montreal Protocol was put into place because these gases. But destroying the ozone layer and so on. So these chlorofluorocarbons also absorb light at certain wavelengths, and they therefore leave imprints in the light that we receive from those planets. And therefore, we can look for uh, signatures of these chlorofluorocarbons, or, or for example, also of course the radio signals that I mentioned, uh, with both of which are techno signatures.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're saying in order to find. Other life in the galaxy, we should probably look for other polluters in the galaxy, right?
2: (laughs) So this is is actually quite a fascinating thing that, uh, you know, people have gone back and forth on, which is that if you were to have some kind of, um, um, you know, uh, some kind of a technological species which happens to, you know, be living a very quiet and sort of sustainable lifestyle, then it's conceivable that the technosignatures that it produces may not be so distinct. For instance, they may opt not to, you know, broadcast very strong radio signals and thereby give away their location. Or they might choose not to pollute the atmosphere because, again, that could be a problem. So on the other hand, there could be some, you know, which happen to be um, more, um, you know, more easygoing in a sense, and which are willing to, you know, broadcast signals of, of various kinds. So, yeah, there's definitely, it would certainly be easier to find um, some kind of technological species, which is looking to actively broadcast its presence, rather than something that is actively trying to hide its presence, or those that are just trying to stay under the radar and not be detected.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh tell me a little bit about uh professor some of the new telescopes that are coming online like like the James Webb Space Telescope. Um how is this going to help you in your work uh in in trying to identify these signatures?
2: Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's an excellent question. So the thing with the James Webb uh you know telescope is that it's, um it's going to come online, you know, in about um uh, we we expect to see it come online towards the end of this year and it's going to be you know far more superior than the Hubble telescope you know which currently is has been the workhorse for a long period of time and the thing with um, with the um, James Webb Space Telescope is that it has um, an area which is um, so it turns out that the area of the Hubble Space Telescope is that similar to that of a large tractor trailer truck Whereas that of the James Webb is about the size of a tennis court. So you can see that there's, you know, a whole bunch of different. And it turns out that the amount of uh, light that we can collect depends very sensitively on the area of the telescope we are talking about. So the larger the telescope is, generally the better, you know, um, the better, the kind of signatures we can find and so on. So um, there were quite a few signatures, including oxygen, which we've talked about, or the chlorophyll fluorocarbon we've talked about. Now, these were beyond the capabilities of the Hubble Space Telescope. Even if you stared at a single planet for a long period of time, you simply wouldn't be able to collect enough photons, enough light from that particular planet to be able to find these kind of signals. But because of the fact that James Webb Space Telescope is so big, the JWST, as it's called, can collect a lot more light, and it can therefore uh, pave the way for actually finding signatures like oxygen or even putting potentially chlorofluorocarbons on some of the nearby planets. And examples of these nearby planets include the very famous TRAPPIST-1 system, which is this uh, planetary system with seven roughly Earth-sized planets at a distance of about 40 light-years from Earth.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. And I'm, I'm going to end with this question, Professor. Do you think that we're going to identify these, these signatures in our lifetime? I mean, are we on the cusp of really finding evidence that there's life in our universe, and will we get to see it?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, uh, you know, I think it goes without saying that this is the hope of everybody, you know, working in the field, that uh, for for the longest time, what humans have only been speculating and dreaming about, we can actually make a reality. And of course, that's an amazing thought. Um, As to whether it can happen, I think it can definitely happen. So the operative word being can, and of course, I can't say that it will happen because there's so many unknowns that we don't know such as, you know, how common is life in the universe. So that will really dictate, uh, you know, how likely we are to find it. For example, if it's super rare, you know, it may only exist on a planet extremely far away where we can't really probe the atmosphere of that planet. On the other hand, if it turns out to be fairly common, then JWST can study the atmospheres of planets like the TRAPPIST-1 system. And if they happen to harbor sh- life, there's a good chance that we might be able to find it in the upcoming decade. And so I think we do stand on the cusp of certainly a very momentous era. Now, whether it happens that we actually find life or not is, is you know, is, it's hard to answer. But what cannot be denied is that we are certainly witnessing an unprecedented Uh, era where we are getting access to massive amounts of data about exoplanets and the number continues to grow rapidly and likewise our exploration of the solar system is also proceeding very well. So I I do think that um, you know there are good reasons to believe that we might be able to find something in the next one to two decades. In
0: the next 20 years, that is awesome. Well, that was FIT professor V Lingham. He's also the co-author of the book, Life in the Cosmos from Biosignatures to Technosignatures. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? And If anybody's listening to this FM signal that's out in the cosmos, hello from Earth. Are We There Yet? a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Brasino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.